Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Uh, today, I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. Peter Adamson. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much, Paul. It's great to be back. Good to see you, sir. Uh, Peter, um, as you may well know, is the host of the hugely popular History of Philosophy podcast, which appears as a book series with Oxford University Press. And I'll put a link to that in the description below. Uh, he teaches at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, uh, where he is now, uh, where he is professor of late ancient and Arabic philosophy. Peter's research has mostly concerned philosophy in the Islamic world and its Greek sources, and he has published and edited numerous books and written dozens of research articles in this area. He says his hobbies include writing podcasts, watching Buster Keaton movies, and writing more podcasts. <laughs> um, today, Peter has kindly agreed to introduce us to a man who I think is one of the most influential uh, Muslim philosophers, a man called Ibn Rushd, but known in the West by his Latinized name, Evores, or Evores. Um, I'm not sure yeah, I say Averroes sometimes. You, I mean, you, some people say it in a kind of French way, like Averroes. Yeah. <laughs> I much prefer that. <laughs> because that's his real name, right? Um, so, Peter, could you, um, would you like to introduce us to this fascinating man, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much for um, having me on, like I say, and uh, I think it's great that you're you're dedicating another episode to one of these figures from the Islamic philosophical tradition. So he lives in the 12th century, died in 1198 CE, and that puts him at the end of what you could think of as the classical, or I sometimes call it the formative period of uh, philosophy in the Islamic world. In fact, in the old days, sort of the bad old days, like when I was a grad student, which is starting to be a long time ago now, I don't know quite how that happened, but let's say 20, 25 years ago, it was still pretty common, even for experts to think of Imrushd as effectively the last philosopher in the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of idea that Aristotelianism and other kinds of Greek philosophy sort of came into Arabic in around the ninth century and then people start grappling with it. And here we could think of other famous figures like Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, who's known as Avicenna in the West. And we've talked about him on a previous episode of your show. Yeah. Um, Al-Ghazali, who reacts in a hostile way to Ibn Sina, and then Ibn Rushd. And Ibn Rushd would, in some ways, even represent the culmination of that tradition, because he's the greatest commentator on Aristotle to have written in Arabic. And in fact, he's the greatest commentator to have written on Aristotle in the medieval period as a whole. And he's probably one of the, or actually he's undoubtedly one of the two greatest pre-modern commentators on Aristotle, along with Alexander of Aphrodisias, who lived in the, in the second century CE. So you can think of him as like both the culmination and the kind of final figure in the story of Arabic Aristotelianism. Um, the, just parenthetically, this isn't really about Imrush, but there's a mistake hidden in that story, which is to assume that this trajectory where Aristotle and other Greek philosophy kind of gets absorbed into Arabic comes over to Islamic Spain, which is where yeah. Imrush lived. I'll say, I'll say more about that in a second, and yeah. then gets transmitted onto the Latin speaking world, that that's just what philosophy was in the Islamic world. Right. But as I think we've talked about in previous episodes, actually <laughs> philosophy just keeps going perfectly yeah. fine in the Islamic East, especially. And it becomes much more about Ibn Sina than about Aristotle. Yeah. 
Mm. And that goes on for centuries and centuries. And a lot of people in the field are now specializing in that. So there's been quite a change in the sense that now we might think of Imanush more as like the end of this early story that's part of a larger story, a much larger story of philosophy in the Islamic world, mm. rather than being the end of the whole story, right? Mm-hmm. But he's still very important. Um, part of his distinctive position has to do with where he is. So whereas a, a lot of the figures I just mentioned, in fact, I guess all the figures I just mentioned, live much further east than he did. So Ibn Sina in particular is living in Central Asia. So he's yeah. from Afghanistan and he <clears> travels <throat> around in, also in modern day Iran. Um, and a lot of the figures who are important also later on are living in Iran. Um, Farabi is from Central Asia um, and worked in Iraq. Akindi is from Iraq, worked in Iraq. Um, Al-Ghazali is also from Persia. So that's kind of the heartland of philosophy in the Islamic world, geographically speaking. Whereas Ibn Rushd lives in Europe, right? But, but this is a really important point, if I just distress this, and I, 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 I like the way you're looking at the ge- geography of this, because Ibn Rushd, um, you know, to speak in modern terms, was a European, he lived in Spain. I know Spain didn't exist then, but he lived in the Iberian Peninsula, where Spain yeah. is. And as you say, he was a European. And I, I, I know this is not really the subject of this podcast, but you know, the popular perception that the Muslims are immigrants to the West, you know, there's the West and there's Muslims, and they mm-hmm. Muslims are coming to the West, um, is a particularly kind of modern uh, idea because, you know, this is a thousand years ago. I mean, this guy was born, you know, in the Christian, 1126, a thousand years ago, and in Cordoba, in Spain, and he, he was an incredibly important figure, not just in philosophy, but in medicine and astronomy, and this goes on yeah. and on and on, a true polymath. But he's a European, I would say, one could say that he was a European man, in a sense, without trying to be anachronistic. I know these categories are very constructed around political identity and, and other forces that are going on. But I just want to kind of assert him that he is he's European in a sense and not just a Muslim from a distant land. You know, he was actually born in Spain and lived yeah, in Spain absolutely. and flourished in Spain. Yeah, you know, I always like to say that he lived further west than Aquinas did. Because <laughs> Aquinas oh, lived So I think it's an important point to make because it sort of disrupts our assumptions about how geography That's literally true. maps onto intellectual history or vice versa. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. But on the other hand, I think it would be a mistake to say that or to somehow assume that it's because he's European that he's engaged with Aristotle in this way. I see. Because actually what he's doing is carrying on a tradition of thinking about Aristotle, 
which had until him been um, taking place almost entirely outside of Europe. So in late antiquity, we have a lot of commentaries being written on Aristotle in Alexandria, which is not far from Europe, but is in Egypt, right? And then the, his real kind of predecessors in the Islamic world are Farabi, who I mentioned before, and yeah. other mostly Christian actually commentators on Aristotle who lived in Baghdad. So there's a kind of um, intellectual trajectory here, which starts in Alexandria and let's say that, or even with Alexander of Aphrodisias, who's from Turkey, which is where Aphrodisias is. Um, so uh, there's a kind of trajectory from these late ancient commentators on Aristotle who are writing in Greek, who by the way, were also translated into Arabic. So it's not just that they're reading Aristotle, they're actually reading the commentaries that were translated from Greek into Arabic. And he's also aware of the commentators from Iraq, like especially Farabi. And then he he's sort of looking back at all that and thinking, okay, this is what philosophy is. Philosophy is Aristotle plus the commentaries on Aristotle. Mm -hmm. and, and what he doesn't like is exactly the thing that became extremely influential in the East, which is Ibn Sina's new philosophy. Mm -hmm. So he thinks that Ibn Sina, although Ibn Sina is very deeply engaged with Aristotle and agrees with Aristotle about a lot of things, he thinks that Ibn Sina has, well, he rightly thinks that Aristotle, that Ibn Sina has brought in a lot of innovations into Aristotelian philosophy, and he doesn't like these innovations. He thinks that the right way to do philosophy is to devote yourself with unprecedented, almost, uh, attention and care to getting Aristotle right. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you'll understand philosophical truth that he's very convinced that Aristotle is like the greatest philosopher who's ever lived and that that's the right way to do philosophy. Can you just explain something that I still don't quite grasp? There are two great, I mean, there are many great ancient Greek philosophers, of course, but two that, that stand out preeminently above all else. If we ignore Socrates, who didn't actually produce anything, as far as I can see, he was just a mentor, yeah, a teacher, didn't Sorry. actually write anything. But in terms of the, 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 the literary legacy is Plato and Aristotle. And yet mm -hmm. this conversation is only about Aristotle. What, what's the, what, why is Plato ignored? I know he's not ignored by Farabi, for example, but, but what, what, why is he apparently so ignored by Ibn Rushd uh, and just yeah, fixated on Aristotle? I don't quite get that. Because I, I personally like Plato. I think he's an extra, his dialogues are quite extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Plato, yeah, Plato's top of the tree, for sure. <laughs> um, that's a good question. It's not really a decision that's been made by Ibn Rushd, though. So right. it's actually much more a feature of the original Greek into Arabic translation movement that they translate everything they can get their hands on by Aristotle. In fact, they pretty much have all the Aristotle we have in Arabic with a few exceptions, um, but they don't translate Plato. They, they do have some paraphrases of like summaries of um, Platonic dialogues, which were translated into Arabic, but they don't have, as far as we know, there wasn't a single Arabic translation of a whole dialogue. Mm. And okay. it's an interesting question, why not? Mm. Um, so maybe we shouldn't get into this too deeply since as, for obvious reasons, it's not that relevant to Mrushd, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of thoughts would be, first of all, they might have perceived Plato as being more like literature and less mm. like philosophical treatises, especially when you think about the, I mean, if you compare Aristotle to Plato, Aristotle's works, first of all, are just didactic treatises. Yeah. And second of all, they actually have titles that tell you what the topic is, right? The physics, the metaphysics on the soul, right? So you know what you're dealing with. 
Whereas with Plato, like, what is the Republic about? Well, it's kind of about everything, right? It's about <laughs> yes. in the soul and right. philosophy, right? But, and then there's also a more historical fact, which is that in the late ancient period, you already have a lot more being written about Aristotle than Plato, especially in terms of commentaries. There were commentaries written on Plato as well, but that the there's a kind of irony here, which is that the philosophers in late antiquity are Platonists. So mm. they think Plato is being more advanced than Aristotle, mm. which means that they think that Aristotle is what you should teach to students. And commentaries were often written in a teaching situation. So they would write commentaries on works for Aristotle, by Aristotle for their students. Mm. And if you would only like read Plato as sort of with the equivalent of a grad student, right? Not with an undergraduate. Yeah. So he, was, when, he, was very, he was very influential, obviously, Plato on, on people like uh, uh, the Church Fathers, like um, St. Augustine, very Platonizing uh, uh, yeah. theologian and so on. So this, it's just curious how you get these concentrations on a particular individual as opposed to, but um, you, you're, you're obviously describing the, the quite prosaic reasons why he wasn't translated uh, in full uh, for those reasons. Interesting. By the way, it should be mentioned that Ibn Rush wrote a commentary on a work by Plato. Ah. So... He, um, he doesn't, again, he doesn't have the whole thing, right? Because as mm -hmm. I just said, there were no full translations of Platonic works, but he has one of these translations of a paraphrase of the Republic. And so, he, and he says in the introduction to his commentary that he doesn't have access to play, to Aristotle's politics. I, I mean, the work, the politics, right? Yeah. Yes. And there, there's a, a whole kind of complicated question about the Arabic transmission of the politics, which is murkier than with most of the Aristotelian works. But anyway, he doesn't have it. And so he says, well, since I don't have the politics, I'm just going to comment on Plato's Republic instead, because I've got an ac I've got access to a paraphrase of that. So it kind of will fill this gap here. Um, but he doesn't comment on it. Um, it's something else we should talk about. It. He, he has different ways of commenting on these works. And one of the ways is to just kind of do another paraphrase. So this is a paraphrase of the paraphrase of the Republic. Um, and it's actually only extant in mm. Hebrew, it's not extant in Arabic, but mm. it's still a pretty interesting work. For one thing, it has a passage where he expands on Plato's ideas about women and very surprisingly says, oh yeah, Plato was completely right about this. And if you look around at our own societies in Islam, you see that women are treated, he says, as if they were plants because they're only used for reproduction. <laughs> and actually they could be very talented and we're kind of wasting this resource as Plato already taught us. And so mm -hmm. he, he takes a very firm, it's really surprisingly firm view mm -hmm. on the extent to which women were mm -hmm. relegated to this purely domestic role in the Islamic mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. In terms of um, Islamic philosophy, what, what is his distinctive contribution? I know some of his ideas are quite controversial uh, as well. So could you just talk us through what, what his contribution was and why he became such a controversial figure, if for some people at least? Yeah, so I think the first thing to think about is, well, first of all, what do we even have? So what did he write? Right. And also, um, where is the impact of these works? Generally speaking, his impact is much greater in Jewish and Christian philosophy than it is in Islamic philosophy. Wow. Um, sometimes you read people saying that his impact in the Islamic world is effectively zero, and that's not true. So there are work people later on who have read him and reflect on him. But in comparison to his impact on Jewish and Latin Christian philosophy, 
his impact in the Islamic world is relatively small, but that's because his impact in these other spheres was enormous. So Jewish philosophy in particular, philosophy in, he, in Arabic and in Hebrew is massively influenced by Imrushd. Um, and in fact, quite a few of his commentaries, including the one on the Republic that I just mentioned, are only extant in Hebrew because they were translated into Hebrew by Jewish scholars. Wow. So did, did he have any influence on Maimonides, the great um, Jewish? Well, he, he's a contemporary of Maimonides. Um, Maimonides dies within just a few years of him and is actually also from southern Andalusia. Mm -hmm. So actually, if you go to Cordoba now, you'll find a statue of Maimonides and a statue of Imrushd. So they might, have even, they might have even met. They were contemporaries, the same part of the world. Did they even meet the great Maimonides and Ibn uh, I'm, I mean, I could imagine they might have walked past each other in the market or something, but the problem is that Maimonides left Spain with his um, family when he was quite young. That's right. Because of uh, persecution, persecution against the Jews. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He goes to Northern Africa and then he winds up in Cairo. So actually, Maimonides' career mostly unfolds in Cairo. So the two of them have parallel lives, but they don't have anything to do with each other, really. But later on, like people like Ghassanides, for example, um, are very, very influenced by Imrushd. In fact, you could almost say that, like what I was saying before about Ibn Sina being the dominant figure who shapes all the philosophy and later Islamic philosophy, Imrushd is that for Jewish philosophy, which is kind of amazing since he's obviously not Jewish. And then in addition, he gets translated a lot in, into Latin. Mm. And, quite, and again, some of his commentaries are only extant in Latin. So, for example, his long commentary on the physics is only extant in Latin. His long commentary on Aristotle's on the soul is only extant in Latin, except for a few fragments. So, um, the, the, so we're basically talking about a Muslim thinker whose greatest impact is actually in other religious traditions, namely Latin-speaking Christianity and Hebrew-speaking Judaism. And the, I mean, it's actually almost hard to explain how huge his influences in these spheres. So as I say, like in, in Jewish philosophy, everyone's thinking about Ibn Rushd all the time. But if you think about what's going on in Latin scholasticism, like at the universities in Paris or Padua or whatever, <clears throat> everybody's, as of the early 13th century, everybody's thinking about Aristotle all the time. And literally, they never think about Aristotle without thinking about Ibn Rushd, never. Because it's they, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even consider doing it because he's his commentaries are just the way you understand aristotle so someone like aquinas would always be looking at commentaries by Imrushd when they're reading aristotle that doesn't mean that they always agree with Imrushd. and in fact well, he's say, he was condemned wasn't he uh Ibn Rushd, i mean well as, as was thomas aquinas of course in the early times but he, he, he was controversial uh he was he's very controversial I mean, firstly yeah. he was an islamic philosopher so it's not obvious that he would not be uh, without criticism, but but he was criticized for his ideas in detail, yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually the things he was criticized for don't really have anything to do with him being Muslim. And in fact, I sometimes think that I, you sort of get the impression that with occasional exceptions, it's almost like the Latin scholastics forget that Ibn Rushd and, and Ibn Sina are Muslims. Like, of course they know that, but first of all, they call them Arabs, they don't call them Muslims. Right. They don't call them Mohammedans or whatever the equivalent would be, right? They call them Arabs, which, by the way, isn't even true. I mean, Ibn Sina wasn't an Arab, <laughs> but Ibn Rush was. Um, but um, well, what, what was his language then? If he wasn't an Arab, what was his? He, wrote, he writes in Arabic. So they both write in Arabic. Ibn Sina also writes in Persian. 
But the point is Arabic, Arab is an ethnicity, right? Arabic is a language. So they both wrote in Arabic and Sina does write, as I say, a little bit in Persian, but in Rish writes only in Arabic. Um, but in any case, they, they, these Latin writing authors, they really just think of Ibn Rushd and Ibn Sina as being important interpreters of Aristotle. That's, that's what he means for them. And when they get upset about him, it's because he's ascribing to Aristotle things they think are false. And there's two big things, which I think we should talk about. Yes. Um, one is his views on the mind, mm. and the other is his views on the eternity of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but before we get into that, I, I should say that um, these commentaries on Aristotle, which is really why he's so influential in the Jewish and Christian traditions, that's not the only thing he writes. So he also writes about medicine and he writes about Islamic law. And when he and he has this very important and interesting text, which was not translated into Latin, as far as I know. Um, and it's called Fasl al-Makal, which is usually translated as decisive treatise. And this is a discussion about the the standing of philosophy within Islam. So here we really see him thinking about the relationship between what he's doing as a philosopher and Islam as a religion. Um, and so he's, he's really got a lot to say about that, but yeah. they don't know about that in the Christian tradition because right. they don't translate Fasa. I mean, they don't care what the standing of philosophy in Islam is anyway, right? So that's not part of his legacy in Christianity. Mm -hmm. But obviously he's very critical of Al-Ghazali, isn't he, and his uh, response to Ibn Sina. But that's a kind of a whole different story, I guess. But uh... Yeah, that's another work that he wrote, which was translated into Latin. So he, so Al-Ghazali wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, Tahafid al-Falasifa, which is an attack on Ibn Sina. And then Ibn Rush wrote a work called Tahafid al-Tahafid, meaning... The Incoherence. The incoherence. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah. He, he quotes... Ghazali line, like literally quotes him line by line. It's interesting. It's almost like a kind of mirror image of the way he comments on Aristotle because he comments on Aristotle by quoting Aristotle and then saying, explaining why Aristotle's right mm -hmm. with Ghazali he quotes him and then explains why he's wrong. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what he's saying in Tahafut at Tahafut is that first of all, he thinks a lot of Ghazali's arguments are garbage. But second of all, he keeps saying, look, you're attacking Ibn Sina, as if Ibn Sina was philosophy, it's called incoherence of the philosophers, right? Tafud al-Falasifa. But Ibn Sina is not a good representative of philosophy because he's not a pure Aristotelian. So why, So he, I think the, the thing he's really angry about, he's very angry at Ghazali for all kinds of reasons, actually. A lot of his whole intellectual project is motivated by the desire to stamp out Ghazali. Yeah. But one of the things he's angry about is that Ghazali is doing what actually what everyone is doing now in the Islamic East, which is just equate philosophy with Ibn Sina. Mm -hmm. And Ibn Rushd is saying, no, 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 philosophy is Aristotle, not Ibn Sina. So we need, so this, like, you're both wrong, <laughs> right? That's sort of the attitude he takes in the Tahafut. <clears throat> okay. So coming back then, uh, as you say, to the central, some of the central issues, you mentioned two of them. Um, would you like to talk us through those? Sure. So should we start with the eternity of the world? Okay. Maybe? Yeah, okay, so this is a very central debating point within uh, Islamic philosophy, and it was already a central debating point in Greek philosophy, because at least at first glance, it looks like Plato, in a dialogue called the Timaeus, denied the eternity of the world and said that there's a creator God who makes the world out of pre-existing matter at some first moment in time. Yeah. Whereas Aristotle explicitly 
and at great length argues that the universe is eternal. So mm -hmm. it's never, it never, it never didn't exist. Right. So to give, give us any, give me any number, mm. the universe has already existed for that long, that many years. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's all, furthermore, it's always existed in pretty much the same way it is now. So we've always had the heavens going, of course, the earth is in the center of the universe for these people. So the heavens are rotating around the earth, which is standing still. And on the earth, you have the biological species. So plants, animals, humans that we're familiar with, and they've always been there as well. So there have always been humans, there have always been giraffes, there have always been cows, whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so we've got a very stable, permanent universe. And already in antiquity, this disparity was noticed, the Platonists tend to say, well, actually, there are ways of reading Plato so that he agrees with Aristotle about this. Mm -hmm. So they assimilate Plato to Aristotle in order to get rid of the disagreements. But in the various Abrahamic traditions, the claim that the universe is eternal becomes very problematic, because it's largely assumed that the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, which obviously includes the Hebrew Bible and the Quran are all committed to the createdness of the universe. And here created means that the universe at first did not exist and then started to exist. But ex nihilo, the idea <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there was a, a, a moment when God created. So before that, mm -hmm. God hadn't created, which obviously is the antithesis of the eternity of the universe. Yeah, although actually, um, there's, there's sort of two versions. I mean, if you say that the universe is not eternal, there's two things you could say. One is that it's created ex nihilo from nothing. So there was literally nothing and then God creates the universe. Mm -hmm. Another option is to say that there was something like maybe disorganized matter. Yep. And then it comes together when God creates it as a universe. Um, yep. And that's a view that's ascribed to Plato quite often. It's also a view you find in the Jewish tradition and antiquity but that's not really anything anyone wants to say in the Islamic tradition. So the Muslim theologians and philosophers all either say that the universe was created from nothing or that it was created or that it wasn't created at all in the sense that it's always been here. Right. But the Aristotelians do want to stress that the universe is causally dependent on God, mm. even though it's eternal. So the, the kind of trick here is to say, well, if you if you ask, is the universe created? It kind of depends what you mean by that. So if you mean, did God suddenly start making there be a universe after there was no universe? So like some like once on Thursday at three o'clock in the afternoon, bam, the universe started to exist, right? Well, if you if if you think that's what happened, you're wrong. So that's that's out. Aristotle shows that that's not true. Um, but that doesn't mean that God isn't creating the universe in some other sense, because he's constantly bringing it into existence. So the universe is always dependent on him. Um, and in general, it's possible for effects to be kind of permanently caused by whatever is causing them. So you, there's a, um, a nice analogy to this that's actually mentioned in Hazalis Tafut, the incoherence. If you imagine a finger that was permanently stirring some water, the, mo the motion of the water would be permanently caused by the finger, even though the finger is moving all the time, right? It didn't never started moving. And yet we would still say that the water is being moved by the finger. 
Um, and that's an analogy that Ghazali uses to illustrate the position he's attacking, which is that the universe is eternal. So that's this is basically Ibn Sina's position. And then Rushd has to think about how he wants to answer this question. And he goes with the eternalists. And he almost has to because it's so clear that Aristotle is an eternalist, right? Um, but he has a really interesting um, thing, sort of interesting and complicated things to say about how exactly God is creating the universe. So his basic idea is that God is causing the universe to move eternally, which is really the idea you get in um, Aristotle, that God is responsible for the eternal circular motions of the heavens, which make everything else happen, like everything that's happening down here is caused by the heavenly motions. Um, but in addition, he thinks that God is the highest form and highest uh, version of being in the universe and is thus the giver of form and being to everything else. So he brought, I mean, he, he would work this out in, in, in detail in a different way than from Ibn Sina, but he basically agrees with Ibn Sina that within Aristotelianism, you can stake out a position according to which the universe is permanently dependent on God, rather than saying that the universe is created after not existing, which he thinks doesn't make any sense. Okay, and what was the other um, main idea that you wanted, that was very controversial? Uh, yeah, is, so what I just talked about was controversial in the Latin tradition, so they're aware that he's an eternalist, but mm -hmm. the thing that really gets them upset yes. is what he says about the intellect. Yeah, yeah. I, I must say, I read about this, and I still can't quite get my head around the intellect. So may, I'm, I'm hope, hoping, Peter, you will make this clear today exactly we'll what he yeah. is saying. Well, the good news is that if if Ibn Rush is right about the intellect, you already understand it. It's just that <laughs> you don't realize that you understand it yet. So And before we dive into this, I should say that if anyone wants to get into this topic more deeply, there's a really good recent book about it by someone named Stephen Ogden. Who actually teaches at my alma mater, Notre Dame? Um, go Irish. Uh, so this is called Averroes on Intellect, and right. it's a very careful, meticulous kind of reconstruction of what um, Rush wanted to say about the intellect. There's also a lot of good work done this by an old colleague of mine named Richard Taylor, uh, who I've known since I was a grad student. Okay, so there's oh, a sorry, lot of Taylor. So I just I just mentioned that name. You, you co-author, edited, I should say, this book, yeah. uh, The Cambridge yeah. Companion. To Arabic mm -hmm. for it's a quick commercial break here. So if you want to read more about uh, edited by your good self and the aforementioned Richard Taylor. Yeah, and actually Taylor wrote the chapter on Ibn Rushd in that book. Perfect. Okay. So okay, so here's so this is this unfortunately is quite complicated. Yes. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. So we have a fundamental problem in Aristotle, which is that in the third book of his work on the soul, he presents a theory of intellect according to which the intellect is a power for taking on a form which is then what is understood so for example let's use my favorite example of giraffes suppose you have a biologist who's researching giraffes what what he wants to say is that the intellect so the greek word here is noose the intellect is potentially identical with the nature of giraffes and when it comes to understand giraffes, it takes on this form. And it takes on a form that is applicable to all of giraffes. So you're not just getting like 
an understanding of this one giraffe in front of you, you're getting a grasp of the nature of giraffes, which belongs to all giraffes in general. Okay. But this is not a platonic form, though. This is not a platonic form. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So there's no so giraffeness doesn't exist in Aristotelian cosmology or philosophy anywhere other than in particular giraffes and in our minds. Right. Okay. 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 So that's that's good. But then and then he says in the fifth chapter, oh, by the way, there's also something is also a version of intellect, which is always active and which relates to thinking the way that light relates to vision. And then he says something really strange, which is that although this intellect is eternal, we do not remember it. And this whole chapter is like, it's literally like half a page long. Mm. And it's like, dude, what are you talking about? Indeed. And nobody knows. <laughs> so in my opinion, nobody knows. Yeah, what it's he's not just me then, okay, yeah. Okay. It's just way too compressed. There's, yeah. I don't think there's any. I mean, many people have had many theories about what was going on here, but as far as I'm concerned, any reading of this chapter is just a guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's more or less educated guesses. So you might think he's talking about God. You might think he's talking about some aspect of the human mind. You might think he's talking about some kind of intellect that's between us and God. Um, and in fact, all of these versions were tried out in the tradition. Because, of course, they weren't willing to say, oh, who knows what he's saying. They had to try to figure it out, right? Mm, right. And then if you, and if you look at in Rust's works, you can see, and there's a lot, of, a lot of really good work has been done on this, that his interpretation of these chapters in On the Soul changed through his career. So yeah. he, he works through different possible ideas about what these two intellects could be, the potential intellect and the active intellect. And he eventually winds up writing his long commentary on the De Anima or Aristotle's On the Soul. And so this is one of his um, biggest commentaries where he quotes every line and like every sentence will get like a paragraph of commentary, right? So it's extremely detailed. And here he says something really surprising. So what he wants to say is that the active intellect is just one intellect which is somehow helping our minds to think right so to and, just pause, to just to pause there before you go over this active intellect are we to understand that as as equivalent to the divine god or is this no. some other no it's a sub divine intellect right. which is somehow involved in human thinking right. but it's not like it doesn't just belong to you or me there's just one for everybody and that actually is something that a lot of people had thought, right? So Messina thought that, Al-Farabi thought that. That was not a big deal. To, so to say, well, this weird active intellect in the fifth chapter, to say that that's some kind of single intellect, which is enabling thought in humans, that was a pretty standard view. So that's mm. not the weird thing. The weird thing is what mm. he says about potential intellect. Mm. Because he says, well, actually, if the active intellect is just one thing, then the potential intellect that goes with it should also just be one thing. Okay. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because again, what you're grasping when you, for example, have an intellectual experience about giraffes, isn't this giraffe or that giraffe, it's just giraffe. It's just a universal thing. It's universal. Exactly. That's actually the it's technical it's word. 
In fact, that's the word you use in this book, also by you, Philosophy in the Islamic World, another commercial break, um, where you actually discuss this very issue um, and use the word universal. So I'm nicking your vocabulary yeah. there. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, yeah, thank you very much. So, uh, so his idea is that since there's only one universal idea of giraffe, there's literally only one universal thought about giraffe. Mm. And so when you have a thought about giraffes, and I do as well, like if we both have a scientific understanding of giraffes, which is not, by the way, it's not the same thing as like having an image in your mind or a memory of a giraffe. That's something that happens in your brain, according to Imnosht. We're talking about scientific understanding of giraffes. And the scientific understanding of the giraffe would be, or of giraffes in general, the nature of giraffes would be the same for you and me. It would be something universal. So he thinks that the potential intellect is just one for all humans and that we are somehow all kind of like participating in its activity when we think, like when we think scientifically. Again, things like memory or the experiences we've had, sensation, all of that is happening here in your brain. But the intellectual grasping of universal natures, which is what's going on when we do science, that happens outside the brain. It happens immaterially in this disembodied intellect, which everyone shares. Um, to go back to what you were asking about platonic forms, people sometimes think, oh, this sounds kind of platonic, right? We've got this super mind which is out there and has all the natures in it. Use the word participation, which again, to my ears, is quite a platonic sounding uh, yeah. word, actually. We participate in the forms in our, but it's not, but uh, that kind of, there's a resonance there for me anyway. Yeah, I guess he, I'm not sure he talks about participation. I think he talks more about union. Right. Unifying with the intellect. Um, but yeah, it could still sound very platonic, but he does, he, he's, he's thinking that it's not platonic at all because these ideas in the active intellect are not platonic forms, they're just thoughts in an intellect. So actually, a better way of thinking about his theory is not to think of it as Platonist, but imagine that you're someone who already thinks that the mind is immaterial. And at first you're thinking, okay, everyone has an immaterial mind, and there's kind of an active element and a potential element, right? And when the potential to think is actualized, then you're actually thinking, right? that's fine. And then he just comes along and says, okay, fine, but there's only one of those. It can't be that you have one and I have one because what would be the difference? So your, your immaterial intellect and my immaterial intellect have the same content, right? They have mm. the same form. And as Aristotle says, the intellect becomes identical with the form when it grasps the form. So what we want is just one intellect that's permanently grasping all the universal natures and when we have the kind of subjective experience of thinking, what we're doing is we're just coming into a kind of connection with that universal intellect. Mm. So it belongs to all of humanity and we can experience it if we do philosophy and science. If we don't, then we don't have anything to do with it. We're just sort of going mm. along in our day-to-day -day life using imagination, memory, and sensation, which is, again, it's all in your body. It's all in your brain. Um, but the intellect is always thinking because there's always humans thinking about stuff right it's strangely seductive and poetic in a way but uh, I'm, I'm 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 still left thinking what were the ontological legs of this thing i mean it's kind of an assertion a, an, a, an extraordinary imaginative philosophy philosophical exercise but um does it have any rigor to it i mean it, is it just a an ontology he just throws out there this is the nature of reality does yeah. he actually 
argue for it uh, as a kind of necessary or deductive or inductive logical outcome or is it merely boom there was this active and potential intellect and there we are do you see what i mean um is, is he actually trying to argue the case or is he merely asserting his ontology or metaphysics no, he's arguing at, for it at great length and like i say I remember that he struggled with this a lot so he he's someone who used to think that the mind belongs to individual humans and then he, he's like wait a minute actually that doesn't make any sense right. and so he actually he, what you get in the long commentary on dianima is him kind of presenting his own reasons for leaving his former view and partially the reasons are exegetical Right, so he's trying to, he's working literally line by line through Aristotle and being, well, what is Aristotle actually saying here? But there are also philosophical arguments. So one of them is um, this point that the if the mind's contents are universal, then the mind can't be particular, right? So how could a particular mind have a universal content if the mind is identical with its content? Right. So that's maybe the most fundamental thought, but he has other arguments. For example, um, a very nice point he makes is that if I teach you something, like suppose that we're both biologists and you're an expert on lions and I'm an expert on giraffes. Right. So we actually would be kind of like born enemies if that were true. But <laughs> we just Predator, to be I, yes. <laughs> and I share my knowledge of giraffes with you. Mm. So what he would say is that what what's going on there is that through a conversation that the two of us are having you are coming to have the same thought as me right because if that weren't the case then you wouldn't have the same piece of knowledge that i have right you'd have something else so uh, it might help here to think of a contrast case so if you have something if you have a, a power that's actually seated in your individual body like for example eyesight if you and I go to the zoo and we look at the same giraffe, even though we're seeing the same giraffe, we're getting different images of it, different visual images of it, right? And he's saying, thinking can't be like that. So when you grasp the nature of giraffe, you're not getting like an image of the giraffe or a representation of it. You're just getting the nature of giraffe. So you're, you're getting literally exactly the same thing as I'm getting, which means that since your mind, again, is just the same thing as what it grasps, your mind must be the same as my mind. There's no space to distinguish between two different minds here. As soon as you distinguish between two different minds, then you're thinking of mind the way you would think about eyes, right? So you have like one visual image of it, I have another one. That's what happens in eyesight. But in the case of thinking, it's just the same thing. That's his point of okay. view. Okay, okay. I think I, I get it now. Thank you for uh, laboring through that. <laughs> um, I'm not 100% persuaded that it's a necessary belief to hold uh, metaphysically, but that's that's not my point. But so okay, so this this proved I understand to be really controversial, and not just among, well, amongst everyone, wasn't it? Like Aquinas uh, and Jewish people, Muslim people, everyone thought not everyone, but a lot of people thought this was seriously uh, wrong and uh, and pushed back. Did they? It was, was it quite a Absolutely. yeah? Yeah, there's sort of there's sort of um, three positions you could take, I guess. One would be to say he's right. And you actually find some, especially in the Renaissance, Ibn Rush was incredibly popular in the Renaissance, especially in Italy. So there's, especially at the University of Padua, no. in like the 15th century or so, there's a whole bunch of philosophers there who start getting really into Ibn Rush and reading the commentaries. 
and there's actually there's actually a complaint about someone who went to study there who says basically all any of these people want to do is talk about Averroes. <laughs> and if you're if you're not willing to like read Averroes, then you have no reason to be here, right? That's all they do, <laughs> you know. And it's sort of like uh, the equivalent of turning up at a Soviet university in the 1960s. You just have to think about Marxism if you go to Padua in the 16th century, 15th century. You have to think about Imrushd. So th so one option is to just say, yeah, he's right. Sorry. So, no, I'm, I'm interrupting you, but I just wanted to just point out again, this is more of a cultural point, that, uh, you know, the heart of the, the Renaissance, I, mean, I may be wrong, but it seems to me started in Italy. It was a, a and, and spread around mm -hmm. Southern Europe, Northern Europe, Germany, and et cetera, eventually, even England eventually. Um, but the central philosopher that they studied in the University of Padua at that time was an Islamic philosopher. I, yeah. I, I know this is an obvious point, but uh, again, we have this cross fertilization this cross uh, is in, interchanged this interconnectedness between these different civilizations intellectually at the cutting edge of civilizational change the renaissance of all things and i guess wants to stress that again we don't have the kind of the muslims are out there and you know what, what we as the christians and the europeans are here we have this interconnected fertilized fertilizing process going on right at the heart of the, re the renaissance itself i just wanted to just mention that uh, as you are continuing. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. And actually, maybe a quick uh, corollary to that is that after the Jews were chased out of Spain, um, after the so-called reconquest. Yeah, Ferdinand and Isabella in the 14th. Yeah, because when they throw out the Muslims, they throw out the Jews as well. Yeah. And a lot of Jews find their way to Italy, and there are some Jewish Renaissance philosophers who write in Latin, um, like Leone Ebreo, as he's sometimes called who's a Jewish philosopher of the Renaissance, um, kind of humanists. And there's also, and actually the, this sort of helps explain what we were just talking about. So someone like Pico della Mirandola, for example, is very influenced by Jewish scholars who are reading Imrushd. And just in general, there's, there's like a kind of um, interweaving of Christian and Jewish philosophers thinking about a Muslim philosopher named Imrushd in the Italian Renaissance. It's really interesting. Um, so anyway, so Trump, you were going back to the yeah the reception of his ideas in the kind of options. The most daring thing you could say is to agree with him. Mm. The most obvious thing you could say is, well, Ibn Rush presumably understands Aristotle because he's the greatest commentator. They actually called him the commentator. They call Aristotle the philosopher. They call Ibn Rush yeah. the the commentator, right? Yeah, that's so, why Aquinas, Aquinas does that, doesn't he? He just, he just Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic doctrine. Yeah. He's just the commentator. <laughs> yeah, that's almost like his name, the commentator. <laughs> Mr. Commentator. Uh, yeah. So, so then, so then you might say, well, okay, so Aristotle believes this so much the worse for Aristotle. <laughs> so this is something you might say if you're not particularly wedded to Aristotle's authority. Yeah. So you might say, well, okay, Imrush has this reading of Aristotle, but of course Aristotle is wrong. Um, as Ibn Rush, because Ibn Rush has got the correct interpretation, but the philosophical view is wrong. And this is something that would maybe be a more common thing to say about the first uh, interpret the first question we talked about, the eternity of the world. So a very common thing to do is to say, well, Ibn Rush understands that for Aristotle, the universe is eternal. And of course, they're both wrong. The universe is not eternal, right? But then there's a third view. And the third view is something you would do if you were very invested in Aristotelianism but didn't want to admit that Aristotelianism is incompatible with Christianity. And this is what Aquinas does. Yes. So in a way, Aquinas, I mean, you could almost say that Aquinas is more radical than the so-called Averroists 
in the sense that he wants to save Aristotle's authority. Or, and to do that, he's willing to jettison Imrush's authority. So what he does is he says, wait a minute, Imrush's reading of Aristotle is incorrect. Right. And he writes a work de dedicated to proving this called Against the Averroists, in which he's targeting Imrush's reading of the, of the De Anima, of, of On the Soul by Aristotle. And he goes through Imrush's interpretation and explains why it's wrong. So what he's doing really is trying to save Aristotle from Imrushd by arguing that this is an incorrect interpretation. The philosophical view is absurd. And he kind of thinks it's obviously absurd. Like he thinks it's just obvious that we have different, you know, we experience that we think separately as separate minds. Um, but he, it, it's not just that he disagrees with the philosophical view. Actually, it's more important for him that he disagrees with it as an interpretation of Aristotle, because if he admitted that it's a correct interpretation of Aristotle, then he'd have to admit that Aristotle has said something absurd and incompatible with Christianity. By the way, you might wonder why is it so obviously incompatible with Christianity? And the answer is that the mind is always thought to be like the thing that most obviously could survive bodily death. Mm. So if you admit that the mind is the same one and the same for all humans, you're severely endangering personal immortality. And in fact, it looks like Imrush does not think that we survive our deaths as individuals. So when he talks about this, he's a little bit cagey about it, but he seems pretty clearly to be saying, or at least suggesting, that when you die, you do live on in a sense, but you only live on because the universal mind lives on. You don't. You personally don't live on. And of course, Aquinas was completely unwilling yeah. to accept that. I'm just I'm just constantly man. This is a, this is not this is the subject we're talking about. I'm just amazed that, Ar that uh, Thomas Aquinas is so devoted and committed to Aristotle, who is a pagan, non-Christian uh, philosopher from ancient Greece. You know, it's not mentioned in the Bible. Obviously, you know, he's not Jewish. He's not Christian, and yet he's so heavily invested intellectually and existentially in this pagan, non-Christian writer. Um, I, I'm, I'm still. Find that slightly odd, actually. And I, I know that's a different, it's a different world then, and and so on. I, I understand the reasons. I just say it's rather, rather peculiar. Um, and of course, yeah. he was condemned for this as well. Uh, the University of Paris, my people said, "How can you, you know, this is not Catholic?" And of course, it isn't Catholic. That's that's right. But later, they came to, well, they made him a saint. I don't mean Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, but um, no, Aristotle hasn't been made a saint yet. <laughs> saint, saint, to saint, uh, Aristotle. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I think. There is a way of understanding that, which is that, so let's say that you think that Aristotle is flagrantly incompatible with Christianity. So now you have to ask yourself, what's gone wrong here, right? And the, in the 13th century, the answer cannot be that Christianity is wrong, obviously, right? Obviously. Mm -hmm. So that means that it's Aristotle's problem. Mm. He's at but Aristotle is basically synonymous with philosophy in the 13th century. Yes. Right? So what you do when you study philosophy right. is study Aristotle. So this is the key, isn't it? You, because they're synonymous, if you're interested in philosophy, and Aristotle, sorry, Thomas Aquinas was the you know philosopher of the uh, philosophical theologian or theologian philosopher preeminent. He, he will be dealing with Aristotle. It's simply unavoidable then. Yeah, and in fact, he has colleagues, and this is really who he's worried about. So he has colleagues at, in Paris who are sometimes called Latin Averroists, actually, because they were so influenced by Imrush. And their view was, well, sometimes reason leads us to prove things 
that aren't actually true. And then Christian theology comes in and corrects them. So, for example, you can rationally prove that the universe is eternal, mm. but that just shows that reason is limited because it will take you to false conclusions, right? Mm. And the reason they wanted to say that is they wanted to kind of say, well, we're here in the arts faculty, we're just teaching logic and physics, so let us do whatever we want within the kind of remit of Aristotelian philosophy. And you theologians can then come along and say, oh, by the way, the universe is created because we can talk about miracles once you're talking about theology, right? So there's kind of all the rules change when you get to theology and metaphysics, right? But Aquinas wanted to say that the that was a perfect mesh between Aristotelian philosophy and Christian theology. He didn't want to say that the two things could come apart, right? Mm -hmm. So he didn't, and he didn't want to say that theology has to correct certain deliverances of reason. So, for example, when he talks about the eternity of the world, what he says is, well, actually. If you look at the rational arguments for and against the eternity of the world, you'll see that none of them are decisive. Yeah, but, scripture, but scripture is decisive. Therefore, I go with what the, his reading of the Bible. Yeah. So, yeah. So Aquinas would want to say that there cannot be a conflict between reason and faith. Right. And it's not that faith has to correct reason. Sometimes faith tells us things we wouldn't know otherwise. For example, we find out from Revelation that the world is created, or that God is a Trinity, or that Jesus was incarnated was the incarnation of, of God. And these are things we wouldn't have known through reason, but you never have a conflict between reason and faith. Yeah. Right. Which means you don't have a conflict between Aristotle and faith. Uh, that, 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 the answer is mystery. What, what, why is the obsession with Aristotle? Well, Aristotle is philosophy. So, yeah. yeah. And of course yeah. that he agrees with in Rushd about. So the two yeah. of them agree that philosophy is the, basically the same thing as Aristotle and correct interpretation of Aristotle. The question is whether is is only how to we inter do we interpret Aristotle? So what are the deliverances of reason? And that's why he has so much invested in showing that Imrush's interpretation of the mm. intellect theory in Aristotle is not the correct interpretation. So it's not just it's not good enough that it's philosophically false. It also has to be the wrong interpretation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can I just ask uh, some more about the reception of Ibn Rushd in, in the West? And we mentioned uh, Thomas Aquinas, and then you earlier you, you mentioned fascinating uh, University of Padua. This bunch of Renaissance uh, philosophers uh, pouring over Ibn Rushd. Uh, okay, so that takes us up to the 15th century. I just want to mention uh, the footnote, by the way. Um, Dante, in his famous work, The Divine Comedy, particularly Hell, Inferno, where I think Ibn Rushd turns up in the the very top circle of hell along with other luminaries so these are people are not being punished are they for their unbelief right. i mean the top, the top tier of hell is not it's not exactly fire it's not a place of punishment and retribution like the lower bits of hell it, it, it's a kind of a a gray zone where there's not bliss but they're kind of it's not a horror chamber either isn't it but but anyway dante in this probably the most famous work of all medieval literature arguably catholic literature i mean um, Dante puts Rushd in there, doesn't he? In the, yeah, yeah he, said, he, he says he's the author of Il Gran Commento, the, the great commentary. Yeah, the great commentary. He's, he's, he is the commentator. And the, um, so, um, but, so coming back to the Renaissance briefly, uh, what is the reception of, of Ibn Rushd continuing after that? Because I know he, he was very well regarded in medicine. Some of his a medical textbook of his was used for centuries, I think. Um, but wh wh when did it, wh when does influence kind of reach its epitome and when does it do really decline? Because obviously it's not there now in the West. We don't read him now. Uh, right. 
Well, you do. Yeah. I mean, academics do, and students do, and interested lay people like myself might. But uh, he's not forming part of our popular intellectual culture anymore. I would argue. No, he's not. You won't see him cited in the New York Times on a regular basis. <laughs> that would be interesting if he was. Yeah. So, so uh, what, what, what was yeah. what, when, did, when did he crescendo, and when did he really decline and, and disappear? I think the crescendo is really in the um, Italian Renaissance. So the the kind of high point of, of what you might call a Veroism is probably in Padua in the 15th, early 16th centuries. But he's been important the whole time ever since the translation movement happens from Arabic into Latin. So just like there was a Greek Arabic translation movement, then there's a, an Arabic Latin translation movement. And that actually happened to, to a large extent in Spain. So not far away from in time and place, right? So it happens at the end of the 12th century, even while he's already, while he's still alive, it's starting to happen, right? right. Um, so, so, so in a way, like I said before, the engagement with Aristotle has been an engagement with the Veroes the whole time. And so in a way, what you're asking is when how Aristotle, yeah. scholasticism last, last. Exactly, right. So that, that's, that, that reframes it perfectly. So obviously, I suppose the Reformation then in Germany, thinking uh, you hear the church bells at the, in Munich there, uh, yeah. in Germany. Uh, I'm just reminded of Martin Luther for some reason. I don't well, know it's why. It's a Catholic church because I'm in Bavaria. Oh, it's a Catholic church. Uh, okay, Luther wouldn't have been happy with that. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but you're saying then, uh, well, obviously the Renaissance, but then at the Reformation when Aristotle is, you know, this whole Aristotle cult, um, what was discredited, um, and in science, of course, uh, with the, the people like uh, Descartes, uh, famously, um, and uh, Roger Bacon, and so on. These people critiqued Aristotle's philosophy, his whole science, uh, and jettisoned it completely, sought to reestablish a, a scientific modern epistemology. Kant, mm -hmm. of course, another German, uh, come, comes in. Uh, and in England, people like Thomas Hobbes, um, who was bitterly anti-Aristotle. Um, so I, I think if the fortunes of Ibn Rushd were connected with Aristotle and scholasticism, in the West, I mean, then the two fell together, didn't they? If Aristotle fell, Ibn exactly. Rushd fell, yeah. because yeah. they were the, one. The only caveat, I would say, is that, um, so when you think about, so when we think about, like, who who are the interesting 17th century philosophers, we think about anti-scholastics like Hobbes and Descartes. Yes. Or Hume, right, later on. Yeah. Um, but it's worth remembering that there's a reason why these people are so angry about scholasticism, which is that there are still lots of scholastics around. Oh, right. right. So, and in fact, at the universities, they're studying scholasticism still. So that goes on and on and on into the 18th century. This is right. I'm, never, I'm reading Thomas Hobbes at the moment. He's complaining about Oxford and Cambridge. Um, it's basically stuff full of Aristotelians. It, it is the philosophy. And he's so you're right. I mean, he, he is the lone figure saying, this is rubbish. I mean, literally, he says it's just rubbish. Uh, yeah, and, absolutely. And so, I mean, this is a very complicated story, which I've been covering a lot in my own podcast, actually, over the last couple of years. But to make a long story short, what happens is that with the rise of humanism, you have a kind of option on the table other than scholasticism, and then the two things kind of fight. And you have then people like Hobbes and Descartes, who in a way have been made possible by humanism because they've freed themselves from the what they would think of as the shackles of Aristotelianism mm. but it's not clear what philosophy should look like once it's not scholastic anymore 
Yes. And so then you get Cartesian rationalism, you get Spinoza, you get empiricism. There's all, all these different developments, right? But yeah. I, th I think what people always forget because of the way philosophy is taught that people who always teach the famous like new stuff and we don't think about, I mean, what you just said, like Hobbes complaining about Oxford, right? Like all yeah. these stupid Aristotelians, right? But he's yeah. talking about most of the philosophers. <laughs> he, yeah. I mean, Hobbes is unusual. Descartes is unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Philosophy was still scholastic well after yeah. Hobbes, right? So actually, Averroes' uh, influence in that sense lasts right up through early modern Europe, because precisely because he's linked to Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophy dies very slow and very hard. It doesn't, yeah. and it also it, it survives even within Protestantism because there's a lot of Protestant scholastics, surprisingly, because we think of scholasticism as something that's be, that's associated with Catholics. Yes, indeed. Protestants didn't want to just cede Aristotle to the Catholics, right? That would have been a terrible move. Like, oh, um, I mean, so if the, if the Protestants had said, well, you can't be an Aristotelian without being a Catholic, that would be terrible news for Protestantism because it would mean that you couldn't study philosophy or physics or logic without being a Catholic. And of course, they didn't want to say that, right? Mm. So it's sort of like what happened in antiquity when the Christians, something you mentioned before, the Christians tried to appropriate Plato and mm. other pagan authors because you don't want to give up on that stuff, right? No, no. You don't want to say that your opponents are the only people who can discuss it. So similarly, the Protestants... I mean, these people aren't famous, right? These these Protestant no. scholastics. But a, a really key figure who's a little bit famous would be Philip Melanchthon. Oh, yeah. It was a companion of Luther or Calvin. I forget which. Uh, yeah. Luther. Luther yeah, he's yeah. one of Luther's closest colleagues. Yeah. Right. And he, in some ways, uh, actually, or may, not even in some ways, he just full stop is more important for the construction of a Protestant intellectual philosophical system mm -hmm. that Luther is. So obviously it's all happening within Lutheranism, right? And within Protestantism more generally. But if you want to think about like, how are we still going to study philosophy as Protestants and as Lutherans? The answer comes from Melanchthon, not Luther, because Luther doesn't care. Oh, doesn't absolutely care. not. <laughs> It'd be, to, It'd be horrified. Like, keep studying Aristotle. But Melanchthon is like, no, wait a minute, we still need to have universities here. <laughs> we're teach. And the answer turns out to be a lot of Aristotle and a lot of humanism. So he fuses the two. And and that's, I think, a, a more common position than we might assume. So the yeah. idea that you have to either be a humanist or a scholastic, and there's nothing in between, that's really not what happens on the ground. So Melanchthon is like, yes, let's learn Hebrew and Greek and improve our Latin, but let's also study Aristotle's logic. Mm. Because that to be competent theologians yeah, that, 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 I, that I've forgotten about or didn't know that the, the enduring uh, relevance then of Aristotle even within the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther but not with Martin Luther himself of course uh, but his uh, uh, well you mentioned the guy um, j j just lastly I just a couple of last questions if I may um, Ibn Rushd's contribution to medicine uh, I know this is not philosophy but what one must mention this surely because I understand his his medical textbook textbooks uh, were required reading by doctors in Europe until yes. what, the 17th century or something? I, I'm, I'm not sure what the term yeah. is. Yeah, there's a work called um, Kuliyat, which means um, like general points in medicine. It's actually the same as the Arabic word for universal, Kuliya or Kuli. Um, so that gets translated into Latin 
and it wanders under the title colliget, which is just a kind of, you know, a Latinization of Kuliat, the way that Averroes is a Latinization of Imrushd. And it, by the way, I always think Averroes doesn't sound very much like Imrushd. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but it's, it, maybe if you were in the late 12th century, it would. I, I don't know what's going on there. But there's yeah. a lot of names like this. So there's like, um, you know, I mean, Ibn Sina Avicenna, maybe sounds well, like that, that. That makes sense. Ibn Sina Avicenna. I can see the linguistic yes. connection, uh, how they can morph. But uh, Averroes and Ibn Rush, sorry, I, I can't get that yeah. one. Especially if they lose the D, right? Yeah, yeah. Averroes or something like that. And that was sound yeah. more. So anyway, so so that's not, um, I mean, I'm not an expert on his medicine and hardly anyone else. So it's not a very well-studied area. Um, but uh, it, I think it would be fair to say that it's not nearly as kind of original and groundbreaking as his work on Aristotle or the decisive treatise for that matter, but it's important work because it's like a kind of key medical textbook. And in fact, um, in Christian in, Europe, I mean, again, I'm, I'm pointing to this kind of uh, connectedness between Europe and the Muslim world. Yeah. And the same thing is true for Ibn Sino or Avicenna. So uh, in fact, even more so. So oh, yeah, 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 of course. Oh, yeah. very, very influential in Latin as well. Yeah. And yeah. his, medical works are extremely influential. So someone like Descartes, for example, would have read Avicenna and I guess Averroes also when he's studying medicine, which Descartes did. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, here in London, Edgware Road, near where I live, there's a, there's a pharmacy or a chemist called Ibn Sina. Um, oh, nice. It's just okay. called Ibn Sina, a uh, chemist. I used to live in London. I should have gotten all my medicine there. Yeah, <laughs> as a philosopher, that would have been ideal. Um, and lastly, then, uh, I promise, uh, is the reception of um, Ibn Rushd in the Muslim philosophical world tradition. Um, he, he was much more influential, as, we, as you say, in the, the West, the, the non-Muslim West, the Latin Christian West. But um, is he just seen, is he a very, very marginal figure in the Islamic tradition uh, because of his, his prominence in the, in the Christian West? Or is he disregarded? Is it only Westerners who are interested in uh, Ibn Rushd? Yeah, if you'd asked me that like 10 years ago, I would have said yes, that he was very marginal. But actually, there's been some recent research by people like Fouad bin Ahmed, who have been pointing out that there's actually a whole bunch of texts that refer to him. Right. Uh, so partially, this is kind of geographically conditioned. So he's, as you might imagine, he's better known in the Islamic West than the Islamic East, because that's where he was. Right. And remember, it was a, lot, a lot harder for texts to move around then, right? They're handwritten documents. Um, so we know something about students um, and even family members of Imrushd who start, are still engaging with his philosophy for a generation or two after he dies. Um, again, we shouldn't forget the Jewish reception, which is partially in Spain, which is yeah. huge. Yeah. Um, but in addition, uh, he was known, for example, to Ibn Taymiyyah, who's quite a bit later, and is a famous kind of um, highly, maybe conservative is the wrong word, but a kind of um, theological firebrand who was unhappy with a lot of things that were happening in Islamic theology and even yeah. more so philosophy. I can't imagine Ibn Timir like Ibn Rushd at all. But he does know him, so he, yeah. he refers to him as well. Yeah. So it's not like nobody knows who he is. Right. And also they were really interested in the Tahafut. So they were interested in the Ghazali's Tahafut. And this idea of like deciding who wins between Ghazali and Ibn Sina, that's something that you also find them doing in the Ottoman tradition. 
And I think that Imrush is sort of is mentioned in that context as well right. as somebody who like came in sort of against Ghazali to serve, to save philosophy, although not to save right. it necessarily. So on the back of Al Ghazali's uh, you know enduring celebrity, of course, uh, and Ibn Rushd's criticism, yeah. Of, uh, yeah, the incoherence, the incoherence, so, uh, Ghazali, yeah. even more so Ibn Sina, they dwarf Ibn Rushd's importance. Yeah, in importance, but I mean. Ibn Sina dwarfs everybody in importance. I mean, he's, he's, because he's, he's like Aristotle in scholasticism. So he mm. just is philosophy to a large extent in the Islamic East for mm. many centuries. Either him or philosophers responding to him. So he kind of sets the whole agenda for post-classical, as I would call it, post-classical philosophy in the Islamic world. But that's a whole other story. Indeed. And um, I just want to recommend then in conclusion, uh, the same two books that I've already mentioned. Well, one is this, uh, The Cambridge Companion to Arabic Philosophy, edited by yourself and Richard uh, Taylor, published obviously by Cambridge University Press, which uh, uh, covers uh, everything that we've been talking about, or you've been talking about, I should say. Um, Evora's Religious dialect, uh, Dialectic and Aristotelian Philosophical Thought, that's Richard's chapter. Uh, and I, I won't go through all the, the chapters, but that's really a very comprehensive companion work. And th this one, um, which is a great read in the uh, Oxford University. Very short introduction. Is that short? There you can see how short yeah. it is. They're all that short. <laughs> it takes but, a long time to write a book that short, I can tell you. I can, no, I can believe it. it far from being uh, brief, it, it is very concise and dense and intense sometimes. Uh, and, and you discuss many of these issues uh, in this book, which I've read, obviously. Highly recommend this as a very short introduction to, the philosoph to philosophy in the Islamic world. But not just Islamic world, you mentioned the Latin West. Thanks. Well, of course. Uh, Actually, yeah. I have, in that same series, I have a very short introduction to Ibn Sina coming out any day now. Yes, month I was two. aware of that. Good. I was certainly getting a, a, a very... And yeah. can I say Please. one other thing, which is oh, that oh. I edited this book. Oh, yes. I co-edited it with my colleague, Matteo Di Giovanni. So right. this is available from Cambridge University Press. And it's yes. kind of like a companion to Ibn Rush, so it covers all the various areas of his thought. And I have a piece in it about his about how he thinks God is a cause of the universe, which is something we touched on. Okay, well, um, that's brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for whetting our appetite for um, for this subject and uh, for your very clear, uh, occasionally witty and uh, lucid um, explanations. And you uh, you helped me to understand uh, Ibn Rushd's idea of the, the active and potential intellect for the first time. I now have this epiphany. I can. Now, confidently go out and communicate the word. Um, so, no, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks Until again for having me on. Bye. -bye.